0: Hi there, this is Terry with Terry's Doing It. I have a story for you today. A very wise woman once said, Certainly, travel is more than the seeing of sights. It's a change that goes on, deep and permanent, in the idea of living. That was American historian Miriam Beard. And her words really made me think, combined with several trips that I took in the last couple of years. Um, I found my own stories that pointed out reality and truth to me that I had never before realized. Specifically, I learned I wasn't afraid to die. I'm afraid to be forgotten. So that was a really um, important realization for me. It allowed me to uh, readdress my fears and to um, make some changes anyway this is the story of all of that and I am so looking forward to to sharing it with you the baby the prostitute and me new ideas for living the Missoula cemetery was an emerald green oasis Huge hardwood trees shaded the headstones nestled beneath them while busy summer sprinklers twirled, sputtered, and hissed great streams of water onto the grass, overshooting onto access streets. Above, squirrels chattered, cedar waxwings and chickadees sang for the delight of being there, and a woodpecker worried a tree trunk. Somewhere in the back of the cemetery unseen, a lawnmower throbbed and chattered, coming close, then farther away. Up a few steps and at the end of a long sidewalk, inside a small flat roofed cinder block building was an empty desk. Inside the office was quiet, but I sensed a presence in the back. My shoes squeaked on the linoleum as I tiptoed toward the inner office. Hello. A tall man with salt and pepper hair stared back, smiling. Can you help me find my family? I asked. Of course, the cemetery superintendent said as he got out a piece of paper. He laid it on his desk. You're here, he drew an X. Then he circled it and ran a jagged yellow line through it and then made and circled another X. Go down Russell Street and make a left on North Street. Grandparents' row is between Marigold and Balsam Streets, there on your left. Initially amused that cemetery streets are named, I quickly learned that without that, finding anyone would be hard. Row after row of headstones and plaques, over 21,000 I later learned, were set into the soft, thick lawn. After several wrong turns, Tucked back at the end of a long row of headstones, there they were, my grandparents' headstones, but not baby Jackie's. Perplexed, I was sure I had seen his headstone after my grandfather's funeral, but where was he? I returned to the office. When the superintendent looked again, he found nothing. No, nope, there's only the two of them, he said. Anyone who's here is listed in the registry and He's not here. Maybe try the Catholic Cemetery, out by Lolo. (laughs) My grandparents were Presbyterians. I saw his grave after my grandfather's funeral. I know I did. Didn't I? At the Missoula Cemetery, on a quest to find baby Jackie's headstone, I had traveled to Montana for a reunion and stopped to take a picture of his headstone for Cindy, an avid genealogist and cousin from Minnesota. The photo would complete her entry in an online registry. I acquiesced, though I was apprehensive about going to the cemetery. I'd had a complicated relationship with my grandmother, and she and my grandfather were buried there. Grammy, as we called her, was a strong willed Swede who ran her immediate family. She didn't have much use for me. She was besotted with babies and seemed fonder of my cousins. Adopted, I attributed that to a bias for flesh and blood. Grammy was intermittently tolerant and critical, never affectionate. So when we visited her, I just stayed out of the way. Curiously though, when she died in the 80s, I cried and I wept in the alley behind her house on my last visit to Missoula. This trip, I resolved to shun sentimentality. I had no stomach for introspection or tears. I'd get in, take the shot, and leave. But then, Jackie was missing. His death certificate, dated 1925, said he died of inanition. It's a state of exhaustion or bodily disorder arising from a lack of nutrition or water. I suspected that my parents were broken after ten days of listening to their writhing, shrieking firstborn. They'd buried him there. But now, even his headstone was gone. No, you didn't dream it, my cousin Darlene confirmed from New York when I went outside and called her. Our fathers were brothers. Jackie's buried there, she insisted. So I drove out, rustled again, and I made a left on north as I walked my grandparents' row. I scanned the headstones. Bruce, Lazada, Lawless, Tucker, Smith. Where was he? I checked around each headstone for fresh dirt, but they'd all been there for years. No one had moved baby Jackie. He'd never been there. I didn't go back to the office. I tried, I texted Cindy. No photo, can't find him. I was disappointed, but relieved most of all that I hadn't cried. I hate to cry. There was no trace of my infant uncle who had lived just 11 days in 1925. I drove away from the cemetery, conflicted, glad to escape, but sad too. I knew I'd never come back, but then it occurred to me that I was the last one who would ever come looking. Darlene has little reason to come west anymore since old age and COVID made us both orphans. No, if I didn't find him, Jackie would be missing from history forever. Bothered me. How could he, how could anyone become inconsequential and forgotten? And how could I allow that? But within minutes, Cindy texted back, Jackie's buried 20 blocks from them. So I went back into the office, and the superintendent found Jackie's headstone in a part of the cemetery that was filled in 1925. It was near the intersection of U and Balsam Streets, not between Marigold and Balsam. Instead of an O and one R in Jackie's last name, the clerk recorded an E and two R's on the burial receipt. Preoccupied, my grandfather signed it and didn't notice. When I finally found Jackie's simple great granite marker, there was an image of a frisky lamb next to his name, and I knew immediately that my parents, sheep ranchers, had helped to replace his headstone. They liked images of sheep on everything, from stationery to salt shakers and sheets. My eyes watered at the thought that they didn't want him to be forgotten, but I didn't cry. Jackie had been found. I was relieved and pleased. My cousins and I had reconnected him to my grandparents, if only in a database. My cousins and I had resurfaced him. I had rewritten the end of his story. Jackie had been forgotten, but now he would be remembered. That seemed enough at the time. But then I learned about a prostitute who had also been forgotten. In eighteen ninety six, Dutch M, a mining camp prostitute, froze to death when she and her madam took a late night hike in the snowy Idaho backcountry near Atlanta. Dutch M was a so called soil dove. Her nickname was given to her by the miners she serviced, and apparently not not much else was deemed important enough to report for posterity. When I decided to go see Atlanta. I didn't know that much. Let's go see what's there, I challenged my husband one hot July morning. Remember that little road sign off Highway 20 that reads Atlanta, 42 miles, and leads off into the National Forest? Don't you wonder what's there? Wouldn't you like to go see? Atlanta, he tilted his head, in Idaho, I guess we could. So we mapped a big loop from Boise to Atlanta and back through the forest. We had no idea. We were in for 234 teeth-shattering, dusty butt-busting, are we there yet, round trip miles. We drove over high mountain passes going, and for hours next to the sinuous Boise River returning. Our exhausting journey to see what we could see took 12 hours from start to finish. Before we got there, though, atop fire-scarred James Creek Summit on Bald Mountain, we stopped to read a monument to Dutch Anne and her madam, Annie Pegleg Mora. Though the inscription was cryptic, I later, later learned on the internet that after a night of drinking in an Atlanta bar, the women were surprised by a late May blizzard while trying to walk eight miles across the mountain to a neighboring town. One website claimed Dutcham died wrapped in Annie's undergarments, and Annie was found incoherent in the snow a few days later. Both of her feet were amputated due to frostbite, but Dutcham was buried in the Atlanta Cemetery. Once I read the memorial, I couldn't get them out of my mind. Annie was memorialized as an entrepreneur and owner of brothels many mining claims, a whiskey seller, and a prostitute on the side. But little is known about Dutch M. That haunted me. For weeks afterward, it was as if she sat on my shoulder whispering, what about me? What's my story? Will you tell it? When we reached Atlanta, with its year-round population of 35, we found it's a sleepy mountain town about 5,400 feet above sea level. Well-kept decaying and decrepit houses were scattered indiscriminately about. Ancient board and batten wood buildings were in various stages of decay and restoration. Some rusty tin roofs and multi windows were covered by lush green vines. Full-time homes were interspersed with short-term rentals there on the edge of the Sawtooth wilderness. The grass between buildings was still tender and green, despite the summer heat, and wild flowers were still sprinkled here and there. Atlanta was quiet, peaceful. In Dutcham's day, though, Atlanta was a bustling town full of stores, bars, hotels, and brothels, I didn't stop to think about that. I I was looking for the cemetery because I thought her grave, if I could find it, might tell me something more. We drove up, down, back, and forth on main, pine, coffin, alturas, and alpine streets looking for it. I was starting to think outsiders aren't supposed to find the cemetery when inside the town's only bar still standing, we found a local who was willing to give us directions. Did you go out there down Main Street, asked the burly man at the end of the bar, wiping hot day cold beer bottle condensation on the belly of his t-shirt. I grinned. Yes, several times. Main Street and every other street in town. He shrugged, jerking his chin over his shoulder. It's right back that way. Did you see the apple trees? It's just past them on your right. My eyes followed his gesture. And I arched my eyebrows by the little pullout next to the big boulders. But there's no sign. Oh, yeah, that's it. You can see it from the road, he insisted. And his buddies nodded like bobbleheads. We returned to the boulders where there was still nothing to see from the road but big piles of cleared brush and a small steep track leading between thick bushes. On faith, we made the short hike. Through Poison Oak, there it was, the Atlanta Cemetery. Another local had told us that Duchy M's grave was off to the side in an area for undesirables, those prostitutes, and those who had committed suicide. And there it was, nickname, place of death, and date. Her headstone told me nothing I didn't already know. It bothered me to think of her as a mere sidekick, her history, a footnote in Annie's story. But where did she get her nickname? Where was she from and how did she end up in Atlanta? I couldn't even find a photo of her online. One website theorized she might have been born Emma von Losch in East Prussia in 1846. When I, when I researched that name, Emma was said to be the daughter of a ship's captain, a widower who lost everything to the bottle. Her older sister ran away, but Emma married, came to America, and later divorced. She had a daughter. Census records in 1920 and 1930 show that an Emma von Losh lived in Boise. I had so many questions: Was Dutch M also Emma von Losch? Was the monument wrong? Did she live beyond 1896 or? Or was that her namesake daughter? Why were two women walking by themselves over a high mountain pass in a blizzard? What was so important that couldn't wait until morning? Why hadn't they worn gloves, hats, and coats? And did, did the child have, have a come-to-Jesus moment? Did she call out for her mother and sister for her daughter? Was she too drunk to notice she was dying? Were her last words, Please, let me sleep, Annie. I'm so tired. I'll never know, and neither will anyone else. Most bothersome, though, was the thought that only a handful of people seemed to care. She'd been forgotten by history, and unlike Jackie's, her story could never be rewritten as anything other than fiction. I got no answers. Months later, I was still pondering why the baby and the prostitute stories troubled me. I eventually wrote about my trips to Missoula and Atlanta, and it pushed the two of them, the baby and the prostitute, from my mind. I thought I just wanted history to take note of them, but I would learn there was more to it. When you die, a friend asked me one day, what would you like written on your headstone? She got a lot done, I said without hesitation. I didn't choose a favorite scripture or even the trite rest in peace. And then I thought, what a curious answer. But maybe I consider someone who got a lot done, who achieved things, would be consequential and remembered. Where did the fear of my being forgotten come from? And then I remembered an oft-repeated dream that I'd had of my childhood home. It was a peaceful place, the home on my parents' Northern California Sheep Ranch. Thirty miles, as the crow flew from the Pacific Ocean, surrounded by orchards, vineyards, and oak woodlands, their place lay under a tall, shady canopy of trees. By June each year, the arid climate would reach green hillsides golden. All summer long, irrigation sprinklers tiss 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 water onto the parched, cracked earth. For years, after my parents sold the ranch, I longed for that place. In the dream, I was always looking in from just beyond an old rusty gate that was closed across the driveway. On either side of the gate were large wild rose bushes that bore fragrant yellow blooms in May. I saw the narrow, curvy, side, curvy sidewalk where my chubby legs furiously pumped my tricycle petals. Thick smells of landland and sheep manure wafted from the barn, where ewes bleated urgently for their wandering lands. The dream was so real that I longed to fling open the gate and sit under the sycamores where Dad would grill garlicky lamb chops while Mom banged pots in the kitchen. And wind chimes tinkled in the cool evening breeze. But I never opened the gate in the dream, and my parents never appeared. I would awaken to feelings of loss and the conviction that I was not part of that place or them. Great salty tears would slip down my cheeks into my mouth and onto my pillow. What was behind the gate, and why did I weep? I'd never dared to ask. After what I learned about the baby and the prostitute, though, I wondered why, and I needed to go and see. I thought that if I went and stood by the rusty gate and pondered questions about my life there, even though my parents were no longer living, answers would pour out like hordes of bats leaving a cave at twilight. But when I finally did travel home, there were no immediate answers there either. My story started before I was adopted, before my birth and relinquishment. My flawed ideas about life began in the womb when I bonded to my birth mother and then was separated from her at birth. Babies remember, studies have shown. It's been said that this breaking of bonds and separation is a kind of death, both of the mother to the child and also to the child's self and wholeness. Of course, no one knew that then, at least all me. I remember that pain that's been described as almost cellular. I no longer consciously did. And trauma persisted. Records from my adoption file said that right after I was born and given up, I had emergency surgery to remove the cyst on my trachea. I spent two months recovering in the hospital. These were followed by four more months in foster care before the paperwork was completed to relinquish me. At six months, my adopted mother told me later, my foster mother delivered me to her with a note saying, don't hold the baby too much, it spoils her. What happens to a baby when she cries and no one comes? I learned that I was the only one I could trust to meet my needs. I might have recovered when for a time as an only child, I was the center of my parents' affection. But less than a year later, they adopted a son, a fetal alcohol syndrome baby with night terrors who slept little. I appeared to be content, so meeting his immediate needs became more important than mine. In time, any trust I had placed in them as nurturers was destroyed. I yearned for their love and simultaneously rejected it, especially my mother's. When I asked years later why she didn't know that I needed her, she said only your brother needed me more. You seemed happy. I, I used to put you in your crib and you liked it. You reached for it. And then I didn't know. I didn't know. I came to my parents wounded, and they did not fix me. So I perfected my flawed idea of living. It was an idea of insignificance, of abandonment, and loss. I was hypervigilant, changed friends like clothing, and people always disappointed me. I trusted no one. My earliest memory was when at age four, my parents picked us up at the babysitter. We were riding home in our old red station wagon. It was hot. I was sticking in the vinyl back seat, fists clenched, sobbing, and furious because they had returned from shopping, bringing my brother a pair of pants and me nothing. My anger had nothing to do with clothing. Oh, Terry, my mother said in disgust, "Stop it! You're so selfish. Stop it now!" Her words shot at me like fiery darts and established an expectation. I was to be the good child, but I wasn't. Inside, I was angry, bitter. You need to understand your brother, my mother told me when I was older. He can't help himself. It's not his fault. He needs our understanding and love. He can't act differently, except he could if he had to. When he finally met someone who held him accountable, a judge who put him behind bars and falls in prison for three years for manufacturing drugs, he was scared straight for an entire decade. While those were the happiest years of my parents' lives, once my mother passed, he returned to his dysfunction. I tried to forgive all of them, but I couldn't. My parents never understood that theirs was a responsibility I would not shoulder them. When my mother died, we had a very tiny window to reconcile our mutual disappointment. I was 11 hours away from the hospital, and I asked her if she wanted me to come home to say goodbye. I won't be there, she said. So I didn't go. Hours later, after my brother and father had said their final goodbyes and left her at the hospital to die alone, I called her room to ask for an update. She's resting comfortably, said the nurse, but her eyes are following me around the room. I can hold the phone to her, ear, to her ear if you like. Mom used to like to accuse me of having to have the last word, and this time I did. I love you, Mom, I said. It's okay to go now. I imagined that had she been able to speak, she might have repeated that back to me, and I still didn't cry. The baby and the prostitute slipped beneath the waters of history without making a ripple until I found and tumbled their stories in my mind, searching for meaning. Their stories and mine were puzzle pieces that were part of a bigger picture. I was afraid of the waters that covered them, afraid that they would similarly ease a It would similarly erase any trace of my life, of me. Had I not traveled, had I not encountered them and their stories, would I? Could I have changed? I don't know, but I am thankful. As Miriam Beard said, travel confronted me with myself. It showed me truths I had never entertained. Now my new idea of living embraces the past as it was without needing to rewrite or regret it. What and who I am is enough. My present and my future are what matters. While I can never rewrite my beginning, I'm crafting a better ending. I think someday I may learn to cry and not hate it.